Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. Still paying attention? That's a taster of Luxembourgish, one of three official languages used in the Grand Duchy. Luxembourgish has never been spoken by so many people. Today's guest explains where it came from and where it's going. At the beginning, I thought I was speaking Luxembourgish and I would say things. I would go to the post office and people would think, hmm, I don't know if that's really Luxembourgish. But after some months, it got easier. And then I just talked to people as much as I could. And I was, again, very lucky that I had a lot of um, skills that I could build on that, that might not be the case for everybody. And, and also the time to do it, which is really important. That was Christine Horner, director of the Centre for Luxembourg Studies at Sheffield University in the UK. Christine, I think that people will do a double take when they hear that last sentence. What? They teach Luxembourgish at a university in the north of England. But it is true. So please tell us, how did the Centre for Luxembourg Studies come about? Good morning, Jess. So um, to your question, um, the Centre for Luxembourg Studies, it was founded in 1995, and that was based on an initiative of Gerald Newton, whose lecturing and research focused on the history of the German language and also varieties of, of Germanic languages. Luxembourgish language and culture was taught as a final year option module for undergraduate students. So it's been taught there now since the late 1990s. Um, when Gerald Newton retired, colleagues at the University of Sheffield approached the Luxembourg government and asked about possibilities for supporting a more fleshed out post in Luxembourg studies. And that's when I came to Sheffield and, and expanded. Presumably students who take Luxembourg studies aren't planning to relocate to Luxembourg. So why did they take it? And what can learning a language spoken by a relatively small number of people in another country teach them? Students in Sheffield are really interested in multilingualism and also in small languages. We offer quite a range of languages, including Czech and Catalan. So in that sense, Luxembourgish isn't alone. And small languages are embedded in our overall curriculum that emphasizes multilingualism. So things that students can learn by studying Luxembourg studies are things like how do multilingual societies function? And also with regards to Luxembourgish, um, learning a small language, it kind of gives them a window on the way that language works in ways that you don't kind of gain when you, you study a big language. We often take things for granted when we study big languages, and these are things we can't take for granted when we learn small languages. I guess something I would say is that students learn to be very resourceful, right, because they don't have the same kinds of materials necessarily that they're used to when they study larger languages like German, French, and Dutch. And I think what's really important is they gain an appreciation for both small languages and small countries that aren't always on the curriculum of all programs. Before today, you said that students often joke with their friends uh, who ask them, what is Luxembourgish? Is it a real language? Is it a dialect? And it's a question that I get asked a lot too. So how would you describe Luxembourgish to an alien, for example? Uh, this is a great question in, in, in many ways, and we get it quite a lot too. I guess the thing is, um, an alien probably wouldn't even understand the question, these concepts of language and dialect, right? I mean, I don't know. I've personally not met an alien yet, but I'm imagining that they, they might say, well, what do you mean a language and a dialect? Because really, these kinds of categories um, originated 
in a European context, and they kind of spread around the world through the processes of colonization. So it's a way of kind of categorizing human language based on status and function of language, rather than actually the nuts and bolts of language itself. Yeah, so it has nothing really to do with the sounds, structures, or words of a language, but rather what people think about it. And that kind of shapes how we use these categories. They're really linked to stuff that's embedded in the social and political context that language is used. Yeah, so describing it to an alien, that's not going to help them too much. But I guess when we come back down to Earth and talk to people, what we kind of do as people is um, we make comparisons a lot. So if it's a small language and we've never heard it before, we've never heard it even that it exists, we sometimes make comparisons to other languages, maybe bigger languages or other ones that we know, such as German, Dutch, or French. Many people pick up on similarities in terms of like the vocabulary, the sounds, the structures. Um, and it's really true that German, Dutch, and Luxembourgish share a lot of these features because they're all West Germanic languages. And for speakers of French, they often notice that mm, there's quite a lot of French-sounding words in Luxembourgish, and they make these connections. Our, our students in Sheffield certainly do this, and I, I know that learners in Luxembourg do this too. It's only human. So tell, tell me, how hard is it to learn to speak and write Luxembourgish for a non-native? Yeah, okay, so we, we were talking about how people build on what they know when they learn a new language, and really when we learn anything, it's just what we do as human beings. And that could be we build on aspects of other languages that we know, or even skills that we have to learn language. So for this reason, or for all of these reasons, it's a really individual process. So for one person, it might feel easy, and for another person, it might feel more challenging. And a lot of this is circumstantial. Our students, um, they take Luxembourgish in the first instance for a year, and they come up to the A2 level. And in fact, in most cases, they go into the B level, certainly in terms of their comprehension. They have three contact hours a week, and they also invest a lot you know, in, in semi-independent learning because they're university students, so they get activities from us that they do. So this is not typical because they're specialists, right? They're modern languages students, and they also have the time um, to invest in this kind of activity. So the challenges really come up when people's skill sets don't match this, and also when they just don't have the time or resource. I mean, this could be due to working a full-time job somewhere else. It could even be like, you know, you're working part-time and you also have childcare duties. And to be fair, I guess the history of people learning Luxembourgish is not very long compared to languages like French and German. So even the learning materials would benefit probably from being elaborated on further than is currently the case. What would you say have been the key evolutionary landmarks for the Luxembourg language over the last two centuries? Well, that's quite a long period of time. If only we had a time capsule or like a Doctor Who booth that we could go back. This is often what I wish for. The thing is that I guess we were talking about this earlier, Jess, that language changes over time, always in terms of its sounds, structures, and even the vocabulary, right? And we notice this when new technologies are introduced, that new words come in, you know, to fulfill these functions. What's also really interesting for me, I guess, as a sociolinguist, is that people's perceptions about language can change over time. And this is certainly the case with Luxembourgish, that people's perceptions and this is based on documents, really, because as we just said, we can't actually travel back in time 
to the early 19th century or even to the late 19th century. So based on the documentation that we have, for example, the Luxembourg Constitution of 1848, languages German and French are mentioned in this document, but not Luxembourgish. So it's not because people weren't speaking Luxembourgish at that time, but it's because it wasn't named or mentioned as such in the Constitution. And it's so this perception of Luxembourgish in terms of its status and function is really what's interesting to kind of map out. Um, this perception's changed over time because we were talking about earlier that the way people categorize language or even view it is very much linked to social and political factors. So it's not because Luxembourgish itself has changed because all language changes over time anyway. But we notice a few things. For example, the Education Act of 1912 introduced Luxembourgish as a school subject. This was only for one hour a week in the primary school. But this is an interesting development because it also corresponds with the time when the first orthography was um, set up for Luxembourgish. Um, a key event that a lot of people refer to, and really event is probably not the correct word, it's, it's, it's a really painful experience, was the Nazi German occupation of Luxembourg during World War II. And following that period, um, Luxembourgish was introduced as a school subject in the secondary school, or the lycée, but just in the very first year, and again, just for an hour a week. But what's interesting in this period is that they, the orthographical um, system was changed, and it was not very successful, and some people say it's because it looked so different from the German orthographical system that students were used to using in primary schools. So what happened in the 1970s was, well, 1975 to be specific, is the orthography was changed almost back to what it was in the 1910s, and this is much more of a success. And one of the groups involved with that was the Aktion Lützebüisch, um, who created you know, booklets, pamphlets, also to help people who had spoken Luxembourgish their whole life, but to be able to write things. So that was a key event. And I suppose really the key event that a lot of people refer to is the 1984 law on the languages of Luxembourg that recognized Luxembourgish as a national language. You've hinted at already that there's a strong political element to the language. And as a journalist, I've noticed that sometimes there are nationalistic voices that might say we need to protect Luxembourgish, that it's in danger. So to what extent do you think that Luxembourgish as a language is under threat? And um, what are these people really saying? Uh, I guess it, to be fair, it can be said there's always a political element to language, but sometimes this goes under the radar, so to speak. And the use of big languages is sometimes taken for granted, even though this can also depend on the context. In the case of small languages, certain political elements may be more noticeable, and especially in certain situations. So in some cases, smallness in and of itself, it can lead to a situation where language is in danger of not being spoken any longer. And this is especially the case when power dynamics disenfranchise speakers of small languages. This is certainly not the case with Luxembourgish. It's a language with governmental recognition, and it's more widely spoken than ever before in terms of the overall number of speakers. The demand for Luxembourgish classes has been booming. So many newcomers are engaged with learning the language, which is, is so amazing and wonderful to see, just as you demonstrated at the beginning of this podcast. I think that it's interesting to note perhaps that 
people who are kind of lifelong Luxembourgish speakers, they sometimes find themselves living or working in environments where they're having to negotiate the use of language on a regular basis. And this kind of active negotiation of languages prompts a lot of reflection on what's going on. Some cases, certain people may even have the desire to speak Luxembourgish in a wider range of settings than they're actually doing nowadays. So I think a lot of the discussion around the future of Luxembourgish, you have these different things coming together in different ways. It's a really complex puzzle. So I've been in Luxembourg for the last 10 years, and in that time, it feels like there's been a really big shift in the language, which has become a lot more visible, for example, in public communications, on posters and on websites. And there was a law about the Luxembourgish language that was voted in 2018. So what did it set out to do? And how much of an impact has that had on the prevalence of the language today, do you think? The year 2018 was interesting because the government launched a series of activities at that time. This followed from the petition 698 and then the counter-petition 725, where a citizen simply put out the request that Luxembourgish be used in more administrative functions than was currently the case. And it kicked off quite a lot of debate. And so uh, the government was quite in tune with these discussions, and this led to the situation in 2018, where they first of all set up this Sprocheron, uh, this series of kind of public um, engagement, town hall kinds of discussions, and they had a website to collect comments. And following that, it's the legislation that you mentioned um, that was ratified um, just to promote the Luxembourgish language. And this stipulated the appointment of a commissioner for the Luxembourgish language, as well as the establishment of that center fit Letzebuist. And that center fit Letzebuist is meant to serve as kind of an umbrella organization to bring together different projects people are working on to, to promote and foster the use of the Luxembourgish language. But I think the other question you asked is um, about the effect or the impact of this. And it's really early days to say really to be fair what the impact is or what it will have in the next 10 years. I mean, one thing I think that's very welcome is, is further elaboration on the Luxembourgish online dictionary. It's started off many years ago, but there's continued work and investment in this. And it's a tool that a lot of learners find extremely useful. Um, even lifelong Luxembourgish speakers refer to it for other reasons, maybe for orthographical reasons, if the spelling is changed. Um, our students in Sheffield are very big fans of the LOD, I just want to say. Um, there's other interesting projects that they're, they're involved with in, in cataloging older words. This is important for language documentation. So it kind of remains to be seen what the impact of this will have, but um, there are interesting activities linked to these recent developments. Now, Christine, your studies are focused on multilingualism and migration. So Luxembourg must give you a lot of material. People often say that Luxembourgish is the key to settling into Luxembourg. Do you know how much data is there out there about the language and the migration experience? And what does it say? But you're spot on that Luxembourg is, is an excellent location to explore questions around multilingualism and migration. And there are a good number of both quantitative and qualitative studies out there, you know, dealing with these kinds of, of issues. The quantitative statistical kinds of studies, they give us insights into broader trends. For example, 
people's reported patterns of language use, right? We get broader insights about this. Um, qualitative research that's based on people's interactions, like maybe interviews with people about their experience with language. I find this particularly insightful because it really gives us a very in-depth view of, of what people are experiencing, in particular as newcomers um, to Luxembourg. So, I mean, I could think of a lot of interesting studies to mention here, but I'm going to mention three things, if, if I'm allowed, if we have time. Um, one is um, a recent study by Bernardino Tavares, who did his PhD at the University of Luxembourg. And he did an ethnographically based study um, with people of Cap Verdean origins in Luxembourg. And I, it's fascinating um, to see kinds of the different struggles and, and successes of people and how issues of language socioeconomic class and race intersect in his study. I mean, I highly recommend reading Bernardino Tavares' work. Um, to make a plug for our center um, in Sheffield, and we cooperate very closely with the University of Luxembourg, is uh, Zara Muller's PhD that she just completed um, and defended a few months ago, focused on the experiences of primary school children with um, multilingual education. And this is also based on interviews with kids and also uh, diaries and notebooks that they kept. And again, it's really interesting to see how aware children are, even in, in the ways that language intersects with social stratification, even. And I think these are important issues to address. So a project that I'm currently working on with a colleague at the University of Bristol, that's Dr. James Hockey, is we're looking at um, language policy and migration experiences in small states, but we're not working with kids, we're working with adults. Um, and he's been doing research in Andorra, and I've been looking at Luxembourg. So one thing that we've been looking at are some of the ways that when you have kind of an ambiguous language policy, the ways that the, this, this can affect newcomers and how they don't always know how to navigate the situation. And that's certainly come up in some of the data um, that we're looking at, and specifically in Luxembourg. Other things that some of the community members have mentioned is they like more opportunities to use Luxembourgish with people and have more community events, and also to have a broader range of materials, especially beyond the A2 level. So we're getting actually interesting recommendations for policymakers from some of the participants in these studies, which I think is amazing and really important. Christine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me with you, Jess. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on Delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on Delano.lu.